This week we're taking a tour of the Beatles haunts in Liverpool city centre, as well as the places that are key to the story of the band. Our guide is Phil, one of the drivers of the Fab Four Taxi Tours, which takes thousands of tourists and locals around the Beatles sites each year. I'm Ellen Kerwin. And I'm Laura Davis, and this is Beatles City. Fab Four Taxis have had to make some changes because of the current pandemic. So what is it like to take a tour with them now, Laura? Well, I had the honour of being the first person on their hour-long tour. They normally do three-hour-long tours, but um, they wanted to kind of try a list, uh, hoping, I think, that it will attract more local people because obviously the international tourists just aren't here at the moment. Um, so it was a couple of months ago now when people were just starting to kind of leave their homes um, after the really strict lockdown. And... Um, Phil was wearing you know, a, a mask and I sat in the back of the taxi with the um, plastic screen up. So um, for a while we were just talking through the intercom system within the taxi and then every so often we'd get out and we'd, we'd actually talk in the open air about some of the sites. So at the time it felt quite strange, you know, with all this kind of him cleaning down the seats with disinfectant and all these things that now seem quite normal. Um I suppose we've just kind of got used to it really but it was great to see that they are now up and running and able to start taking people around the city again. Yeah of course and two of the places you visited one was where John Lennon and Cynthia got married and the second was um, the house that Brian Epstein let them stay in so which one was your favourite site to visit? What I really liked about both of these places was that I just didn't know about them. Um, they're on streets that I walk down quite a lot. It's quite a, They're in quite a cultural area of the city, so it's somewhere that I spend quite a lot of time. And I do always look at all the buildings, and yet I had no idea that that was where the register office was. I had no idea that even that Brian Epson had lent them a flat to stay in. Yeah, it was just really interesting I think to see my own city with fresh eyes another thing that I really enjoyed was going to the hospital where John Lennon was born because it was actually the hospital where I was born as well and yeah I have really clear memories of going to visit my sister when she was born and like meeting her for the very first time and she was born in May 1980 so actually it was just a few months before John Lennon died okay so we're standing outside number 64 Mount Pleasant now today I think it's getting done up as flats or something like that but a long time ago it used to be a registry office of births, marriages and deaths. On the 23rd of August 1962 in that room on the right hand side over there this is where John Lennon married his sweetheart Cynthia Powell. Now on the day there wasn't many people here there's only five people here. Now that included Brian as the best man. Paul and George were here. And Cynthia's side, her brother Tony and his wife Marjorie. And that was it. No aunties, uncles, cousins, parents. Lillian, Cynthia's mum was working in Canada. She couldn't get back in time. Small gathering then. A very small gathering. And uh, Mimi, John's auntie, who brought him up from the age of five, she actually refused to come. She blames Cynthia for getting pregnant on purpose. Now, this is the result. This is young Julian Lennon, a picture of young Julian here. That was the result. He was born on the 8th of April the following year. This picture I'm showing you now is my favorite picture of young Julian. 
and John together. Unfortunately, not long after this photograph, John actually left and didn't really get in touch very often. He did, but not as often as, as Julian would have liked. Yeah. Now, people said, well, he didn't really love her when they split up. He just married because she was pregnant. It's not quite true. John was, was in love with Cynthia at the time. He was just a bit too young. He was 21 and she was 22. And, well, nearly. <laughs> this is proof. Oh. And he did love her. This is a love letter from John Lennon to Cynthia Powell. I love you, 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 I do. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but down here, it says, I love you like guitars. That is the definite proof. <laughs> if you love them like guitars, that's the best. Now, Brian Epstein said to Cynthia, how are you getting to the registry office? He said, well, I'll get the bus. He said, oh no, he said, I'll pick you up in the car. But she thought, I'm gonna bring a camera because Brian had banned all cameras from being, he didn't want anyone knowing. He tried to stop them getting married because he thought it would spoil the band before it even began. So he banned all cameras, but she thought, he's not my boss, he can't stop me taking a, we a wedding photograph. I'm gonna bring a camera. And she put the camera on the sideboard. Now she lived in Garmoyle Road at the time, off Smithdown Road. And when Brian knocked on the door to pick it up, to bring it to the wedding, she walked straight past the camera and into the car. She forgot it. So there was no pictures actually taken on the day. Now, when they got here, she got even a bit more upset because there was a man outside the window digging a hole with a pneumatic drill. And when the registrar said, can the groom please step forward? Now he's either doing this to lighten the mood or generally he couldn't hear because of all the noise. George Harrison nearly married Cynthia that day. <laughs> he stepped forward, they all fell about laughing, except for the registrar. Not very happy even messing around in his registrar. Now, years later, people have been asking Cynthia all the time, can I see your wedding photographs? And she had to say, no, I haven't got any. But she was an artist and she met John in art college. So she drew this picture I'm going to show you now. This is a picture of a wedding day. So there we have the registrar. We've got Brian Epstein as the best man. John and Cynthia. Paul McCartney and George Harrison. This is Tony, her brother, and his wife, Marjorie. But the man causing all the trouble through the window is the man with the drill. <laughs> now, not a late, great looking building, but a, a quite an important part one in John's life. And when they split up years later, Paul felt sorry for young Julian, and he wrote him that lovely song, Hey Jude. And he used to call him Jules, but he couldn't get Jules to sound right in the song, so he changed it to Jude. Yeah, you're right, so, it's quite a simple building, isn't it, really? Quite a simple building, Red yeah. Bricks. The door's quite a bit fancy, maybe. It's been a number of things over the years. The Drug and Alcohol Rehabilitation Centre was, was one of them, uh, being government building. I don't know what they're doing now. I think it's flats or something they're doing inside. So that is number 64, Mount Pleasant. I've driven past this a lot and never known that. Yeah, a lot of people say that. Yeah. <laughs> Great, okay. thank you. Okay. So how long have you worked for Fab Four still? I've been uh, Fab Four since uh, 2009. I used to do history tours 
I used to have my old company, Liverpool History Taxi Tours. Yeah. And uh, I was doing the tour one day and uh, bumped into Teddy Kenyon, who was running the company at the time with his wife. Yeah. And, uh, and the next thing, I'm part of the company. Okay. Now, we're on into Rodney Street, and on number four on the right hand side used to be a, a private hospital. I'll point the building out to you. I can stop here because there's no traffic behind me at the moment. You'll see this plaque on the wall and it tells you this is the birthplace of Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager. Oh, yeah. a private hospital. Born on the 19th of September 1934. But there's also another plaque on the building there and it's a plaque to James Maori, who was a consul, an American consul. And he was American consul from uh, 1790, and it was for about 40 years. But interestingly, interesting thing is, his father had actually came to Britain to be a, I think he was a vicar, and he uh, he started a school back in America. And so James Maori, the younger, he actually became uh, involved with. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, he went to the same school as him. Oh, okay. So a little bit of a link there. Gosh. Now, two years ago, in June of 1918, in this building on the right, Paul McCartney done an impromptu concert. I was lucky that day because I was at Paul McCartney's house when Paul McCartney came out of the house. There was a big crowd there. So I actually seen Paul McCartney that day. So. If you watch Carpool Karaoke, you see James Corden getting into the car. Just look at the back of the car, you just see me standing there, a big grin on my face. <laughs> that must have been quite a surprise. It was a big surprise. Well, a nice one. Yeah. So, we claim to fame. Had I'm you, in Carpool Karaoke. Had you seen him before? I haven't, no. I've, every time the tickets go up, they go in seconds and things. Hmm. Oh, they do, yeah. Now, in front of us here, as you know, this is the Catholic Cathedral, built between 1962 and 1967. And uh, this wasn't the original design. The original design would have been a massive 520 feet tall. Lutchins was the famous architect who got the contract to build it. Unfortunately, that was in the 30s. And on the 3rd of September 1939, Britain entered the Second World War. All the work was stopped. Yeah. One man continued to build the crypt underneath, which is actually finished, and you can do a tour of the crypt. And it's well worth it if you're into architecture. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's known in Liverpool by three very affectionate nicknames. I'm sure you know one or two of them. Paddy's Wigwam is the most famous one. The Mersey Funnel, or the Pope's Launch Pad into Space. <laughs> so these are three nicknames. But that is not the real reason I'm here. The real reason, we're going to get out of Been here before. Is that the hospital? No. Yeah. I was born in the hospital. You were? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, today uh, this is student accommodation. This is a little student village. But in its day, it used to be a maternity hospital. And on the 9th of October 1940, in a building behind there, John Winston Lennon was born. 
And this is John Lennon's birth certificate that tells you his name was John Winston Lennon. Okay? Now this is Mum and Dad, Julia and Freddie. Now Freddie wasn't around a lot in, in John Lennon's life. He was in the Merchant Navy. In fact, he didn't see him straight away because he was away at sea when John was actually born. The first person in the family to see him was actually Mimi and she made her way to the hospital. Uh, it, was, uh, it was early in the morning so no buses running at the time so she said she made her way on foot all the way to the hospital. It's a long way. It is a long way. Now Freddie unfortunately uh, and Julia they split up and uh, she met another man and his name was Taffy Williams. Taffy Williams loved her and he wanted to marry her but there was a problem. He wanted to get rid of John, he didn't want John in his life and she wouldn't get rid of John and so they actually split up because of this. Now there's two stories that go with this because she got pregnant. Now the baby was called Victoria Elizabeth and she was born on the 19th of June 1940. Now there's two stories to this. One of the stories says that Taffy Williams was the father. But another story says it was a Salvation Army officer called Pedersen. So which one is true? We're not quite sure. We think it's the Salvation Army officer because she turned up, this sister of John's. John supposedly didn't know he had a sister. There was rumours that he'd actually sent a private investigator searching for her. But this can't be verified by anyone. Yoko probably knows. But uh, we're, not, we're not too sure on this, so we can't say it's definitely true or not. If he did have an inkling that he had a sister, I think the first person he might have asked was his other sisters, Julia and Jackie. But Julia says she didn't know nothing about this sister until 1998, when she turned up after her adoptive mother died. She was adopted at six weeks old, and her name was changed to Ingrid Pedersen. We think John didn't know anything about Ingrid. But again, there's no possible truth that, you know, we, we can't say for sure that this is real or it isn't real. But did he send someone? Or is this just someone fabricated this story? So I can't tell you that is definite or not. Now, uh, Freddie uh, again turned up uh, later on. A bit of a fight occurred between her new boyfriend, Bobby Dakins. And uh, Bobby Dakins and her went on to have two children called Julia and Jackie. And John didn't know about these sisters. He had a good relationship with them. But she was living with Bobby Dakins in a one-bedroom flat. And Mimi, John's auntie, didn't like that and went round and told them so straight. Nothing happened about it. She informed the Salvation Army and, and under the pressure from her, the Salvation Army and her father, the baby was actually given up for adoption by Mimi. Not, so that's what, how John ended up coming to live with, it, with his auntie. Now, he, he eventually was famous around the world and Ingrid Pedersen turned up, but not until 1998. And there's a picture of her. She did turn up. But John didn't know, we think, anything about it. He definitely didn't see her, but she knew she was John's sister. 
from a very early age. She found her adoption papers. She was looking for papers to prove uh, a birth certificate, basically, she was looking for. for, for a, we think it was a, for the job she was going for. And uh, she eventually turned up. John, we never, ever met her. So let's go and see his plaque around the corner. Have you seen the plaque on here then? I don't think I've been back since I've... Oh, well, I came to visit my sister when she was born. Here, and that was... And then... I was born in the same hospital, yeah? Yeah. So this is the plaque of John Lennon on the building. And uh, as you can see, it says, this is not here. Now, this comes from an exhibition that John and Yoko had in Syracuse, New York, on John's 31st birthday. This is not here exhibition. To Julia Lennon, Lee Stanley, a son, and John was born at 6.30 on the 9th of October, 1940. 11 years ago, that little baby was carried from this doorway. 40 very short years on this earth. Yeah. But what an impact he made. From 75 onwards, he was getting a little bit of peace in his life, which he thoroughly deserved. And then his life was ended. So, the birthplace of John Lennon. It's nice, isn't it, with his, his glasses, his trademark glasses on it. If you, if you walk that way or this way, whichever side you're on, those eyes look at you. Okay, I'm going to try it. Yeah, you're right, that's quite strange. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, it looks better when it's wet. When it's wet, it, it sort of shines. Uh, shines out there. Yeah, great. Okay. And this is flats as well, isn't it, in our student flats? Yes, yeah, students. So they don't put no one in here because Sunday morning we'd turn up at 9, 10 o'clock and they'd still be in bed or just going to bed. <laughs> so they don't put anyone in there. <laughs> so at, at the moment, this is the first one-hour tour we've done. Oh, OK. Yeah, so, so we're testing the timings as well. What Nikki said. So I shouldn't ask you too many questions. No, no, you ask me as many questions as you want. It's designed for people who haven't got a lot of time and they just want a little bit, you know, say your businessman, he's got a couple of hours before the train and he wants to do something Beatles before he goes. Yeah. Our normal tour would have been two hours, which we still have that tour. Yeah. But he might not have been able to do it because it was too long. So this one, it would be ideal for them. Yeah. Or someone go on the match. Do something before the match, and then oh, yeah. go to the match. Yeah. When John Lennon got married to Cynthia, Brian Epstein said, Where are you going to live as a married couple, John? She said, I have no idea. He said, Here is the keys to my apartment. You can stay here till you sort yourselves out. So, this is John's first marital home we're actually going to. Now, it's not Brian's main house because he lived on Queenie's Drive with his, uh, his mum, Queenie, and his dad, Harry. Yeah. This is what we call his passion pad. This is where Brian took his boyfriend. Okay. Now, people think Brian never had a girlfriend, but he did for a good, good while. A lady called Sonia Sigerson. He had a girlfriend. Not people realised. But maybe that was to hide the fact that he was gay. Yeah. Because being gay up to 1967, I think it was, it was illegal to be gay. So don't tell anyone you married. 
Don't tell anyone you're pregnant. And don't tell anyone Brian is gay. So there's lots of secrets going on in this flat we're going to now. And he died a very unfortunate death on the 27th of August, 1967. He died of an accidental drug overdose. Mm -hmm. Now it's number 36 on the left hand side. So, uh, so it's this one here with the red door. Number 36, Fulton Street. And it's not the whole house, it's uh, this floor here. And this is a picture of Brian. I'm sure you've seen him before. As you can see, he died aged 32 years of age. According to the coroner, it was an accidental drug overdose. He'd been taking drugs for a long time. Every time he took drugs, a little bit too much, all the drugs added up to one big overdose. That's the official, what the coroner says. But maybe he had, he had said before, on two occasions, he was going to commit suicide. Never happened. Would he have committed suicide? Because he'd had his mum stay with him for six weeks after his father had he died. He loved his mum to bits. Would he have done that to his mum? Would he have killed himself? I don't think so. I think it was an accidental drug overdose. He was going to lose the Beatles as well because the Beatles were now in the recording studio. They weren't doing tours anymore. So what is Brian going to do for us? We're not doing tours. Shall we get rid of him and save some money? 20, 25%, whatever you were paying him. So maybe, you know, maybe it was a drug overdose. Maybe he was worried. Now Brian himself originally wanted to be a dressmaker, believe it or not. He did try acting for a while as well. Yeah, he was in his father's shop in Nems, working there one day. And a guy comes in and he says, have you got the record, My Bonnie by Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers? Now that came about through their first manager, Alan Williams. And there's a picture of Alan Williams here. Alan Williams had a club in the city centre, which is still there, called the Jacaranda. And he had a Caribbean steel band playing for him. But one day they just disappeared. They went over to Hamburg, wrote to Alan. Alan, they're crying out for bands over here. So, not want to miss an opportunity as a businessman, he actually um, decided to go over to Germany, where he's introduced to Bruno Koschmieder. And they got chatting, and uh, he was saying he had control of quite a few bands in Liverpool. He'd done a recording of some of them bands in the city before he left. But on the way over, something went wrong with the recording. They think it demagnetised. So the tape recording of the bands was useless. So Bruno Koschmieder said he would meet Alan. And so Alan was waiting in Liverpool for him to show up. He didn't show up. Now at the same time, a man called Larry Pons put on a show in Liverpool for all the up-and-coming bands to showcase themselves to go on tour with the bigger stars, people like Billy Fury. And he cancelled it at the last minute. All the bands were furious, especially a band called Derry and the Seniors. They were going to kill him. So to calm them down, Alan said, look, I know the owner of the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. I'll give you a ring and get you a gig. So they set off for London and they were on stage in the Two Eyes Coffee Bar playing on stage. In walks Bruno Koshmeter. Hmm. What are you doing here? 
<laughs> there was a mix-up in the translation where they were supposed to meet. So he says he liked that band, Derry and the Seniors. So Derry and the Seniors went across to Hamburg to play in the Kaiser Keller. Now he had two clubs, the other one was the Indra Club. He was changing it from a stripper's bar to a rock and roll bar. And he needed another band. And he asked Alan, can you send me another band over? Alan asked a few bands, they all said no. They didn't want to go off on a jaunt for three months, come home to nowhere. Because in Liverpool at that time, the jobs were, you know, starting to go. The docks were starting to close down one by one. But the Silver Beetles didn't have a problem. They decided to go over. It was an adventure. They needed a drummer. He didn't have one at the time. So they interviewed Pete Best on the Saturday. And they set off for Hamburg on the Monday. Now, they were playing in the Indra Club. But there was a lady living upstairs. She was constantly complaining, the rock and roll, all the banging. She couldn't sleep. It was going on till six, seven o'clock in the morning. They played near about 48 times and eventually it was closed down and they had to team up with the other band who was playing in the Kaiser Keller. But Teddy and the seniors had gone home. The other band was called Rory Storm and the Hurricanes with Ringo Starr on drums. And that was the first time he actually played for them. He actually stood in in Hamburg when Pete Best didn't play one day. He was either sick or didn't turn up for his girl because he was with his girlfriend. Now, while they were over there, they'd heard a friend of theirs called Tony Sheridan was playing in the Top Ten Club. They decided to go and watch him. Now, Bruno Foschmead had found out they were going to one of his rivals' clubs. He threatened them, you play for anyone but me, I will get you kicked out this country. That was a challenge. But they did play for them. They actually done a recording and signed a recording contract with the famous Bear Camphart, believe it or not. And Bear Camphart was the fool who sold the Beatles. <laughs> they done a recording by called My Bonnie, by Tony Shedden and the Beat Brothers. And that's when Ray Jones walks into the shop and asks Brian. Now that's one story, because there's two stories to this one as well. Because it was put out that Ray Jones was just a figment of the imagination. They had to put the name of someone who wanted the song My Bonnie on, so he just made up a name of Ray Jones. So then a Ray Jones turns up from Heighton, says he was the one. So again, some confusion. <laughs> So, the, the, what I'm going to tell you about is the Ray Jones version. Ray Jones uh, says, have you got the song by Tony Sheridan and the Beat Brothers? He said, I know Tony Sheridan, I don't know the Beat Brothers. He said, they're the Beatles, they play in the, in the uh, Cavern Club at lunchtime. So on the 9th of November, 1961, Brian walked into the Cavern Club and he seen the Beatles playing for the very first time. Loves what he saw and he wanted to be the manager. Goes to see Alan. Alan says, don't touch him with a barge pole. He still owe me money. They owed him money from gigs they hadn't played because when they, were, when they went across to Hamburg, the second time, they got the contract for, to play for Peter Eckholm. And so they stopped paying him any commission. So that's why they actually fell out. And they was, he was sending them solicitors letters and things like this. 
So that's how Brian became the manager of the Beatles. He actually signed the first contract in the Casbah Coffee Club in West Derby Village. Unfortunately, they didn't realise at the time they had to sign a contract over a postage stamp. They didn't do that. So they had to go back in 1962 into NEM store and sign the official contract. So that is where John wrote a song about all of his problems. And one of them problems was he was gay. Cynthia was pregnant. Don't tell anyone you're married. Don't tell anyone you're pregnant. Don't tell anyone Brian's gay. So there's lots of secrets going on in there. Hence the song, listen, do you want to know a secret? No, okay. <laughs> okay? Yeah, it's a nice house. Yeah, it's a lovely house. So Phil, how did you, have you always been a Beatles fan? I haven't actually. Um, I was just, I grew up a little bit too late. I was born in 1958. I was 12 when they split up. Mm. Uh, one of my sisters was an Elvis fan. The other one was uh, Cliff Richard. So when the Beatles came along, it wasn't really their cup of tea. Um, so 12 when he split up, 16 I joined the forces. I was away from Liverpool. And that's the sort of age when you start going out, going to clubs, going to things like that. Mm. And you hear all this music, but didn't happen for me so I was quite late coming into the Beatles so what was it that got you into them uh, you can't get away from it in this city anywhere you go you go to a pub or a club there's always Beatles songs playing and then you hear the stories coming out you know Paul McCartney's doing this doing that and you start thinking to yourself and that's how I started to listen to a little bit of the Beatles so I must have been 25 to 26 that sort of age when I started listening not really listened a lot mm. and uh, then being a cab driver um, people t talk to you in the cab oh can you take me to a Beetle house mm. yeah yeah okay uh, you take me to the Beetle house but I didn't know no stories so it's a lot of research over the years so from I think it was 2008 I started doing history tours of the city and 2009 I bumped into Terry Kenyon of the Fab Four Taxi Tours mm -hmm. and it was his company with his wife Debbie and they asked me to come on board and I've not looked back since. Brilliant, so you really en you enjoy doing it? I am obsessed, <laughs> it's an obsession. All, all the time on lockdown I was, I was sending little bits of information to all the other drivers, oh look what I've just found, look what I've just found and it, it's constant, you wake up telling yourself Beatles stories <laughs> it's crazy. You can't get sleep sometimes. <laughs> There's lots of seagulls out today. There is, yeah. We're all starving. Stand under the, under the shade. Oh, yeah, good idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first building I want to tell you, tell you about is this one here on the left. This is the Liverpool Institute High School for Boys, what it was. And this was one of the better schools for pupils in Liverpool to go to. Two of the most famous pupils to go there from the age of 11, George Harrison and Paul McCartney. George hated it. He was a rebel in school. He used to wear drainpipe trousers, pointy shoes, big quiff in his hair. Never sewn his school badge on either. He pinned it on with two pens. 
when he came out of school he pulled the badge off and put it in his pocket <laughs> Paul on the other hand he loved it he loved it that much in 1978 Wings played in Liverpool and he brought his wife Linda to the school and they were shown around the school by about 10 pupils one of them pupils is now one of our tour guides called Peter and he made Paul a cup of tea that day. He's very proud of it. <laughs> he should be. His claim to fame. <laughs> now, he was upset, Paul, because the school was in a bit of a state. It needed some repairs. He said to the school, get the repairs done, send me the bill, I'll pay for them. So he paid for the school repairs. But then in the 80s, Liverpool was on its downward spiral from being one of the richest cities in the world to being one of the poorest cities in Europe. European money rebuilt Liverpool so it was boarded up to save money so Paul was introduced to a man called Mark Featherstone Whitty and he loved the American television program called Fame he wanted to open a fame school in London he asked Paul was he interested he said I am actually but not in London come and have a look at this building here if they bought it they put the extension on the far end and reopened it as the Liverpool Institute High School, uh, sorry, Liverpool Institute for Performing Arts. That is Paul McCartney's fame school. He's there a few times a year. He actually teaches, he teaches inside. He also gives away the graduation certificates every single year. He brings friends like Billy Paul and Bono and Woody Halvinson, I believe, was here a few years back. But every year, he has given away the graduations since it opened every July. Unfortunately, you can't do it this year. No, no of course. <laughs> and they all shake hands with Paul McCartney. What a guy. He's given back to this city something special. Yeah. Now, it wasn't big enough in the end because he was getting that many applications. So we actually bought this building on the corner. Now, that building on the corner just so happens to be John Lennon's art college. And that's where John met Cynthia. Now, Cynthia's father had died of lung cancer. His mum had been killed in the road accident. They had something in common. But John also met somebody else in here. He met this guy, Stuart Sutcliffe. Now, Stuart was one of the best artists in that school. He was warned, stay away from Lennon, he's trouble. They became best friends. Join my band, Stu. I don't want to join your band, I'm an artist. I want to do my art. Every time he asked him, he said no. He was more interested in doing his art. Now, one day, John and Paul were sitting in the Casbah Coffee Club. Now, that is where the Beatles really did start. Not the cavern. They started in there in 1959. 29th of August, 1959, they were the resident band in the Casbah. So that's where they really did start. They were there two years later. Mona Best, Pete Best's mum moved them on to the cavern. Now, they were sitting in there, John and Paul, having a coffee, when in walked Stuart. He said, guess what? I've just won a painting competition. I've got 65 pounds to buy some new paints, brushes and canvas. Oh, says John, a Hofner base, same price. I don't want to join the band, John. Every time you went to leave the club, John and Paul grabbed the table, shoved him in the corner and trapped him in. About an hour later, he finally gives in. Now, Stuart wasn't the best. Some people think he was totally incompetent, but he wasn't. He did have a Spanish guitar from the age of 14, and he could do a little bit on the piano too, so he wasn't totally incompetent, but he was 
the base is something totally different so he was, he was laying his lines people think he used to turn backwards or sideways on purpose so people couldn't see him playing nothing <laughs> was just laying his lines and there's a great picture of him here and there he is in the corner yep now this is this was taken in the blue angel this is an audition to go on tour and there is Johnny Hutch from the big three because the drummer Tommy Moore didn't turn up that day so the Johnny Hutch stood in for them they didn't get that to go on tour with Billy Fury but what they actually did they actually got the gig to go up to Scotland to play with Johnny Gentle or Johnny Gently I should say so now unfortunately uh, they were playing gigs a lot in Liverpool and he decided he was he was now going to leave when they were in Hamburg he was going to stay in Germany so he left the band and he's going to be married Astrid and he enrolled in a college to do his art in Germany but eventually his visa ran out so he had to come home again and he rejoined the band to play a few gigs he played in a place called Latham Hall in Littleland all the girls fancied him all their boyfriends hated him so when they seen him outside on his own loading the van they beat him up now Stuart was getting headaches he went to the doctors he sent him for x-rays couldn't find nothing wrong and he kept having these headaches all the time he went back to Germany he had x-rays in Germany still nothing wrong two days at a time he was lying in bed in pain but unfortunately he died of a brain hemorrhage John was devastated he thought it was his fault he blames himself he thought it was his fault for getting him in the band he might have been beat up but doctors looked over this case years later and they put it down to a couple of things it could have been it was either an aneurysm or something called AVM it was congenital but John didn't know at the time it took him a long time to get over Stuart's death which now leads me on to this lovely piece of artwork called The Case History by John King so this was probably in 1998 this is a case history by John King the Canadian artist it was a competition held by Lippe and he designed suitcases he cast real cases out of concrete so I'm just going to point a couple out for you so this top one here is Sir Giles Gilbert Scott now Sir Giles Gilbert Scott designed the cathedral around the corner but he's more famous than that he designed the red telephone box too and there is one in the cathedral too this is Charles Dickens he's got his little plaque on the side there came to Liverpool quite a lot he was an honorary policeman for a day he patrolled the docks he gave readings in lots of buildings including Paul's school there it tells you that black plaque on it Charles Dickens gave readings in there his favorite building was St George's Hall believe it or not said it was the finest building in the country this is a medical bag of Dr William Henry Duncan now unfortunately we had a lot of problems with the Irish potato famine victims between 1845 and 1852 1.3 million Irish immigrants came to Liverpool to escape the potato famine or the great hunger as they called it now those who could afford it went to America those who couldn't stayed here where we had dysentery cholera and typhoid mortality rate in parts of Liverpool at that point for under eights was something like 60% were dying so something had to be done about it and in 1846 he was given the job to sort this out he is responsible for the sanitary act in Great Britain he's Britain's first medical officer for health 
So in Liverpool, we honoured him with the highest honour we could possibly give him. We named a pub after him. <laughs> I thought you were going to say It's that. an honour. <laughs> Over here, George Harrison had a guitar case. Unfortunately, no longer here. Wow. Skateboarders. They've also, students we think have pushed this away, that should be further over there, touching this one. That was the neck, that was the body, and that was his plaque. Unfortunately, skateboarders broke it, so they gave George a new one, which is over here. Now, unfortunately, the, someone stole his second plaque, so he's now on his third plaque. We have one to Sir Paul McCartney, that's his second plaque. Mm -hmm. This is one to Stuart Sutcliffe, an original. The School of Lippe with Mark Featherstone Whitty getting his name there, which oh, yeah. he thoroughly deserved. And this little one round here is to John and Yoko. The plaques on the side there. Now in 1969, John and Yoko stayed in bed in the Amsterdam Hilton Hotel for a week. They'd done some silly stunts. One of them was called Acorn Piece, where they sent a couple of acorns to all the world leaders. And I have a letter that they sent with it. This letter is to the President of Malawi. Enclosed in this package are two living sculptures, which are acorns, in the hope that you'll plant them in your garden to grow two trees for world peace. They mention that in a song, The Ballad of John and Yoko, 50 acorns tied in a sack. And again, in the distance, you've got a great view of our Catholic Cathedral. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Now, it wouldn't be right if I didn't tell you about the Anglican Cathedral. Now, Paul McCartney actually failed his audition to sing in the choir in there. But he, he did have his go at classical music, the Liverpool Auditorio in 1991. And he gets on the microphone, he said, I believe the old choir master will fail my additions in here, where are you? <laughs> A little old man put his hand up. He said, is my voice stronger, strong enough now? <laughs> now the organ has got, is the biggest organ in Great Britain. It's got 10,267 pipes in the organ. But that's not the real reason I'm here again. There's another reason, and it's behind them trees there. So, we're going to get out of this one again. Okay. Now, this here is Gambia Terrace. And in number three Gambia Terrace, they, they all used to be flats. Uh, not Gambia as the place Gambia, but they were built by a guy called John Gambia. That's, that's what they're named after. But um, in flat number three, um, that's where John's friend, Rod Murray, and Stuart Sutcliffe had a flat. Now, around this time John was going to art college, his mum was killed in the road accident, so he was on a bit of a bender for about a year, according to his sister Julia. So he would often bang heads with Mimi, you know, uh, as the grief set in, and he'd often spend a lot of time in this flat here. Also, this is the area, the flat, where he consummated his relationship with Cynthia on a dirty old mattress, according to Cynthia. She wasn't impressed. <laughs> Who would be? <laughs> now, George Harrison also stayed here for a while as well. After they got the gig to go to play with Johnny Gentle up in Scotland, then George's father kicked him out. He said, you think you're a big man packing your apprenticeship up in Blacklers as an apprentice electrician? You think you can 
make your own decisions, you go make your own way in the world. So we kicked him out the house mm-hmm. to teach him a lesson. So we, George stayed here for a while. When they were at school, um, George and Paul used to come and drop the guitars off of a, a daytime, a morning before they went to, to school. And over lunchtime, they'd come back to the flat and they would, they would practice with Stuart and John in the flat itself. Now, on one occasion, when uh, George and Paul turned up, they were waiting outside. We've got it. Go off. We're going to call ourselves the Beatles. So they were telling that story to the Crickets because that's where the name came from, they reckon, because the Crickets had a double meaning, a game of cricket and an insect. And that was the inspiration for John and Stuart. And they liked Buddy Holly. They loved Buddy Holly in the crickets. Mm. When they told that story to the crickets, the crickets said, what's a game of cricket? <laughs> they got the name under false pretenses. <laughs> now, unfortunately, uh, they were kicked out of this flat because uh, the newspaper reporters were doing stories in the echo from uh, students around the city. And uh, they were telling the story in the flat. The, Alan Williams turned up with the reporters at the flat and uh, they'd done the story and it appeared in the papers and the landlady wasn't impressed saying they were living in squalor and things like this and so when they come back one after lunch from being in art college Paul John's pictures and poet, poetry Stuart's pictures all on the grass verge she kicked, she kicked them out of the flat at the end of the having to leave now, also, she noticed that some of the furniture had been burnt as well. They burnt some of the furniture, the firewood, because coal was expensive for them, being students. So they were not great tenants, were they? No, they weren't great tenants, no. <laughs> <laughs> now, coincidentally, years later, Norwegian wood comes along. we burnt some of the furniture, so yeah. is that an influence for Norwegian wood? Could be. Who knows? Now, this is the... This is the uh, picture that appeared in the newspaper. And there's John sitting on the floor, there's Alan Williams there. Now they were expecting it to be all scruffy, all like students live, throw out clothes everywhere. Now they are they ever cleaned up, but that morning was one of them occasions they had cleaned up. So they had to reenact it, they had to make this look like as though it was all scruffy and lived in. <laughs> so that's why you got all this stuff on the floor. <laughs> but it was staged. Gosh. Now, do you want to go around the corner and see the flat? Yeah, sure. Okay. I'll just uh, Now, apparently, John was very handy with his, his pen knife. He always carried a little pen knife with him. And he always carved his initials in trees and things like this. Mm-hmm. But apparently, you can go on the roof of this. Now, this was where all the merchants lived. They could see the ships on the river. Mm. And then someone put a bloody big cathedral in the way. <laughs> so apparently, uh, John carved his initials on the roof somewhere yeah. in the brickwork. Yeah. Great place to live, wouldn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? All those pillars. Yeah. The balcony. The, you know, the high ceilings, the, the single glazed windows. Yeah, cold. It would have been freezing, wouldn't it? Yeah. There we go. So that's the door. And that is where the name of the Beatles came from. <laughs> right on this doorstep when Paul was told. Yeah. Impressive. 
it's great little place, isn't it? It's lovely, it's so elegant. Yeah, it's been here a long time, 17 something. So it was built as merchant houses? Yeah, you know, the big merchants who were, you know, had shit all the ship owners and people mm. like this. Because this area was a very affluent area. Yeah. So we have done your hour tour. That's been really wonderful, thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Beatles City, please remember to review, rate and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you can also find episodes from our first three series. Join us next week when we'll be finding out about the band's roadie and friend Mal Evans and his lost archive. <laughs> <laughs>